Hi, I'm Alicia Johnston. And I'm Steve McCarthy. And this is Open Bible Podcast. Uh, I just want to let you know that Steve is about to share a story that I think is super important to listen to. Uh, It's also kind of heavy. So be ready for that. But I think it's well worth um, and actually really important to listen to what he has to say. After I graduated from high school, I still had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I flunked out of my first semester at Arizona State University and decided to go give community college a try. I thought that by taking some low-cost classes, maybe I could figure out a career path. What that really meant is I was just taking classes on anything that interested me, which was a lot of fun. I took photography classes, film classes, and also took theater classes. And theater was something that I had never thought I would ever be up for, but I absolutely loved it. I remember on the very first day, our teacher had us stand around in a circle and practice these different like embodiment exercises. As I looked around the circle at all of these people contorting themselves in these different positions, I thought, wow, this is so weird, and yet I love it. I found that I really had a knack for acting. Looking back on it now, I was so shy and withdrawn when I was in high school that I think theater allowed me to strangely express myself through these characters that I got to play. It was a time when I really did not feel comfortable in my own skin, and so to be able to portray a character that was felt empowering in this interesting way. So I kept taking these classes, and eventually I took a class on directing. We were learning about things like blocking and how to coach actors and all these sorts of things. And one of our assignments was to do a two-man scene to direct it ourselves and, and put it up in front of the class. And so I was paired off with this guy named Garrison to do this scene. Now, I don't really remember the name of the play that we were doing a scene from, but I remember roughly the plot. My character was drunk and stumbling home after a night at the bars, and he walks into his apartment where his roommate is and just starts going on and on about this really cute girl that he met at the bar. So we rehearse the scene, and then it's time to put it up in front of the class. And so my character stumbles into the room, talking a little too loudly, swaying a little bit too much. And at one point, I took one of those, like, teetering steps, you know, that drunk people will sometimes make where suddenly they're off balance and you're not sure if they're going to fall or not. And so in the scene, Garrison, my scene partner, jumps up from the couch he was sitting on, wraps his arm around my shoulder, and then pulls me down to sit on the couch, all trying to calm me down while I'm rambling on and on about this girl. It was in that moment with his arm wrapped around me, looking me in the eyes, talking to me really kindly, where I had one of those time stand still kind of moments. It felt like electricity shot through my entire body. And this guy who I had only known in this class and had never really paid much attention to, suddenly I was feeling this overwhelming sense of attraction. I just wanted to sit there forever and have him hold me. I feel like this is one of those cheesy moments from a movie that actually does sometimes play out in reality. Maybe you've had a moment where someone walked into the room and you saw them and you were just struck. And all you wanted to do is get to know them and hang out with them. Suddenly you're filled with this desire for intimacy, for connection, and for romance. This is happening to me in the middle of this scene. And so as I'm sitting there, electricity shooting through my body, my first thought is, wait, does he know? Can he tell? Am I sending off this signal? Does the rest of the class know? Can they see it on my face? Can they see the hair raised on my arms? And that terrified me. And the thought that came next terrified me too. Just thinking, no, 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 no. You have to shut this down. You can't do this. You can't feel this way. It's wrong. God says it's wrong. You need to stop. Shut it down. And it was this bizarre mix 
of the thrill of connection and then the immediate shame that came after that. Shame that people in the room might know. Shame that what I'm doing is wrong. Shame that this is proof that I am somehow broken beyond repair. It's the sort of thing that should have been, I don't know, a fun moment? Something to go tell my friends about? Oh my gosh, I have a crush on somebody. Maybe a point of hope, of thinking, who knows? Maybe there's something here. I think that's how most people experience a moment like that. And instead, for me, it was awful. This reminder of everything that I couldn't have. Everything that I had been working towards, praying towards, trying not to be, suddenly came out unbidden, in full force, and I had no control over it. All this is going through my head while he finishes delivering his set of lines. And then it's my turn. Because I'm a pretty good actor. I just kept rambling on drunkenly about the cute girl I met at the bar. I left that class, got in my car, and cried. I felt, honestly, pretty bitter about what other people got to have that I did not. I went home that night and wrote in my journal about this experience, which I still have all my old journals, and I recently reread it and Here's one quote from that day's entry. At some point, even thinking about who I'm attracted to becomes a sin. I was doing good for so long, not letting anyone get to me until this whole thing blew up in my face. These are the moments people live for, and I have to shut it down just to stay in God's grace. I feel like I watched a part of myself die today. I want to read you one more quote from my journal that's also around this same time period. I wrote this in the form of a dialogue with God, saying, You know the sin of my heart, the sin I am too ashamed to put onto paper, the sin that makes me want to kill myself, the things I think that are so wrong yet dwell in. You know how I strive to repress it, to ignore it, to defy it, yet it clings so stubbornly to me. I am honestly not sure where to go from here. When I wrote that journal entry, I used to pace around the townhouse complex that I lived in, Every single night, I would go out and I would walk and I would talk to God. And there would be begging and pleading, wondering if there was some trick I could employ, something that would take this away, something that would make me normal. And there would be periods of time where I thought, hey, maybe things are getting better. And then a moment like the one I just described in class would happen. And it felt like falling down the mountain all the way down, back to square one. Yes, this is still true. You are still gay. When I think back on that younger version of Steve, I have so much compassion for him. My entire life was wrapped around following God. I was working, quote, part-time doing ministry, which if you've ever worked in ministry, you know there are no part-time jobs. But I was working so hard to tell other people about who Jesus was, and yet I was experiencing so much internal conflict and shame. I was trying to figure out how to move forward in the world, and and the fact that I was gay made me feel like I was completely stuck, and I didn't know what to do. And it honestly had some serious implications on my health. I was severely depressed to the point of, as you heard in that journal entry, thinking about ending my own life on a regular basis. And I'm so glad that I never went through with any attempts. But yet that thought pattern was swirling around in my head for, I don't know, close to a decade. And listen, I'm not sharing all this with you because I want you to feel bad for me or anything like that. Like, that was a very long time ago. I'm in a much better place, and honestly, I really like being gay now. Which, try and tell my 22-year-old self that. He would lose his mind. No, I'm telling you this because right now, there are an untold number of young LGBTQ Christians who are going through the exact same thing that I was going through. And I care deeply 
about them. And I'm guessing that you do too. My bet is that you want people to thrive and to flourish. If you consider yourself a Christian, maybe that's a reason you're a part of this faith to begin with, because you believe that a life with Jesus is the best possible life to live. And so we need to talk about these things, and we need to ask the question, does our experience matter? And does our experience have any role to play in how we think about theology? And there are some other things worth considering as well. Numerous studies have been done that show us that a gay kid who grows up in a conservative Christian context is significantly more likely to attempt suicide than a gay kid who grows up in a non-religious context. Does that matter? Should that be a part of the conversation around affirming same-sex relationships? Is saying to someone, you cannot engage in any form of same-sex relationships, you must remain celibate your whole life, is saying that across the board to everyone inherently harmful. Now let's pause for a moment and make sure we're all on the same page. We're going to talk about celibacy this episode, but we're not going to say hey, celibacy is impossible, or it's hard, or we don't like it, so same-sex marriage must be okay. That's just not a correct way to represent this episode or what we believe. And here's why. If you boil affirming theology down to its most basic arguments, I would say there are essentially two. And the first one is that those verses that seem to be a direct prohibition, that when you look at the Bible as a whole and when you understand what the authors were actually saying, that that's not what they intended at all. So that's basically saying there's not a prohibition, there's not a direct no, this is absolutely an okay in the Bible. The second would be that there is a strong biblical sexual ethic that includes same-sex couples, that same-sex marriage can very well include the meaning, the purpose, the function of marriage as God intended it. So essentially, it's saying that a biblical ethic does say yes to same-sex marriage. Those are the two basic arguments. Now, today, we are not talking about the first category of arguments. We're not talking about those texts that people use to say, the Bible says, no, it's not okay. We talk about those texts on a different day. And as you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, we are interested in delving into those. But try as you're listening not to kind of jump back and forth between the two categories. Try to listen to what Matthew is saying about why the Bible might say yes without interrupting that question with questions about whether there are biblical prohibitions. It's going to be a lot easier for us to understand each other if we take this one piece at a time. And I need to say one more thing. I talk in this episode about how this issue of celibacy is important to me, even though I'm bisexual and not gay, but that hasn't always been the case. For many, many years, I didn't realize the things I talk about during this episode. And I just thought that I could date men and I didn't need to worry about the whole issue of celibacy. It just seemed irrelevant to me. And as a result, in many ways, I didn't even feel part of the LGBTQ community because I was getting such a narrow view of it in the place and position I was, that it was about people who had to be celibate because they couldn't marry someone of the other sex. Well, truly, the concerns of gay and lesbian people have really taken precedence in the conversation, um, and as well as the Christian reactions to gay and lesbian people, not so much bisexual and transgender people. So the conversation about celibacy gets a lot of airtime. In fact, it's become the solution for a lot of people who oppose same-sex marriage but they don't believe that you can change someone's sexual orientation. So they say, lifelong celibacy, that is the option. 
So it's very important to talk about it, and we're definitely going to be delving into the, this episode, even if it is a question that primarily centers gay and lesbian people. Before we get started, I just want to define a few terms for you because they're going to come up in the interview. Those are side A, side B, and ex-gay. Historically, ex-gay was the first one that came along. The response that the Christian church first had to just the growing awareness in society that there were people with different sexual orientations was to believe that that orientation could be changed, that people could become straight or heterosexual. And that was the ex-gay movement, more or less. It's more complicated than that, but more or less. And the ex-gay movement, a lot of us consider it as having failed because Exodus International, which is the, or was the largest movement within the ex-gay movement and an umbrella organization for hundreds of other ministries closed its doors in 2013 and said, hey, uh, we weren't actually seeing the change that we kept expecting to see or thinking we saw or believing we were moving in the direction of people weren't really changing. So their slogan, change is possible, became something that they just had to say, mm, not working. So many of us talk about the ex-gay movement as something that is demonstrably false. The other is the side A and side B. And that arose from conversations that began online of gay and bisexual and transgender Christians talking about how they wrestle with their faith and their sexuality and kind of defining very broadly two different ways of approaching it. Side A being the affirming side, saying that you know, sexual ethics aren't a lot different for a heterosexual versus someone who's gay or bisexual, and that same-sex marriage was a good Christian way to express and experience sexuality, um, and also affirming people who are transgender as well, and being transgender. So, side B would be saying traditional Christian ethics are that marriage is only a man and a woman, so I don't think I could change my orientation, but for gay people, that would generally mean celibacy, for bisexual people, no same-sex marriage, and no gender transitioning for transgender people. So, those are the terms, and um, I hope you enjoy this episode. Matthew Vines is the author of God and the Gay Christian, as well as the founder and executive director of the Reformation Project. Matthew has done an incredible job of advancing the conversation around LGBTQ inclusion in the church. A few months ago, he was in town scouting out locations for the annual conference that the Reformation Project puts on, which will be held here where Alicia and I live in Phoenix in the fall of 2020. In between looking at potential locations, Matthew and Alicia stopped by the church where I work at. We set up a few microphones and started having a conversation around this question we're asking. Is mandatory celibacy harmful? And we started off with a question that I hear quite a bit, which is something like this. Lots of people, for whatever reason, don't find a spouse in their life and remain functionally celibate. Single people are fine, right? How is this any different from them? Well, I'd say several things about that. First of all, I'd say most people who go through life in our society, regardless of sexual orientation, and never find someone to share their life with are not fine. Celibacy has a, I think, very valuable place in Christianity and in the Christian tradition. And when it was practiced, it was done in community. Monks, nuns, people are not meant to live alone, period. And that doesn't necessarily mean everyone must have right, a romantic partner. No, that doesn't have to be the case. Jesus certainly didn't. Paul didn't. Mother Teresa didn't. I think celibacy should be valued more. In many ways, celibacy is devalued. Singleness is devalued in our society. The problem is that so many people, LGBTQ or straight, if they're then told, well, you didn't find somebody, go be alone, just go live in an apartment all on their own for 60 years. People, that's actually not fine. And so that's a big problem right there. And I think people so often overestimate, regardless of sexual orientation even, 
the difficulty of being alone in the culture that we live in that is not made for single people to have community. So it's it also just seems like I would appreciate it more if that argument were coming from a straight person who was single and celibate for their whole life. I hear that argument 99% of the time from straight folks who are married and having sex. And at that point, it's I'm just kind of thinking, well, are you the best spokesperson for this position? It's a lot easier to say, oh, I mean, yes, I'm married. I have a family. I'm having sex. But it's not that important. Well, if it's not that important, would you be willing to give it up? And not just, well, not just saying, oh, you know, well, I can't separate from my spouse because, you know, Jesus said don't get divorced. Okay, no. Would you be willing to go back in time and make it never happen? No one would be willing to do that. Who would be willing to do that? In fact, it's an offensive thing to consider. And not because of the self-sacrifice that that would entail. It's offensive to consider because of how valuable your relationship is, how valuable your relationship with your spouse, how valuable your relationship with your children. That's what would offend most people even being asked that question. And yet when that question is posed to us, we're supposed to, if we're offended in any way or put off by it, then it's apparently rooted in selfishness. I think one thing that is coming to mind as I'm hearing you talking is the importance of people who are straight to realize that it feels the same to us as it would to them. Right. Like to not have a spouse. To the not way have a that family. it would feel for you, like that's the same way that it feels to us. Mm-hmm. And to really think about what that would be like, you know, whether you are married or whether you're not married, um, or whether, you know, like for me at this point, for me to rejoin the Seventh day Adventist church that I'm from, I would have to divorce my wife. Yeah. You know, so to really think like, that means the same thing to me as it would mean to you. I think it needs to be a starting point before we even talk about celibacy as like <laughs> a possibility to like let the emotional weight of that sink in right. for like a second, which I, 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 I find that it's really maybe difficult for any of us to really consider the reality of other people's lives and what we're there. We're asking them. So we, so what I hear you saying is like, pause for a second and think about that and come from like that. Right. Absolutely. And just recognize how much the church in our context is not built to support lifelong singleness. So what about those folks who say, well, then let's like create like a community. Yes. For that to happen. Kind of like the spiritual friendship The spiritual friendship side B kind of. I mean, absolutely. And I think that that's a really healthy thing to recognize that there are needs here that aren't being met, even regardless of people's sexual orientation. So let's maybe reassess our culture. Are we idolizing sex and marriage? Are we putting that on this pedestal that that makes anybody who, for whom that's not a part of their life feel like they are incomplete, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Let's look at all those things. However, all that being said, there is still a categorical difference between mandatory lifelong celibacy for LGBTQ Christians and lifelong singleness for straight Christians who do not find a partner or a spouse. And that latter case, straight Christians who do not find a partner or spouse, that shouldn't be underestimated the difficulty of that, but it is still a fundamentally different thing for two main reasons. One, no one is telling a straight person, whether they're 30, 40, 50, 60, if they're single, that they must foreclose on the possibility of ever finding romantic love and partnership. And having to give up any hope of that invites a kind of despair at a core level of what kind of intimacy you can experience in life and what kind of partnership you can have in life that is unique. That's a pretty big difference because a lot of people, even if it takes them a lot longer, may find somebody later. You at least have the possibility of going on dates with people. You have the possibility of holding somebody's hand and feeling some electricity run through your body. You have the possibility. And not shame about that. Yes, and you have the possibility of getting your heart broken and not feeling 
and of just feeling all the normal terrible feelings you're supposed to feel, <laughs> but not a deep level of shame that you felt love. And so I remember actually the first time that I fell in love, it was not reciprocated. And that was hard. It was hard. But I also felt more alive in that experience than I had ever felt before. I mean, on the one hand, I hated it. And on the other hand, I felt so grateful for it because I thought, oh, my goodness. And I could only experience that after I came to terms with my sexual orientation and accepted it. And then I didn't see those feelings and I didn't see that love as being anything to be ashamed about. It just hurt. (laughs) It just hurt. And that is a deep human. I just think that's a core part of the human condition. And it was so illuminating to me. I also realized in that I would rather live a life of constant heartbreak Mm -hmm. than a life where I have closed myself off from ever being able to experience even not just the ups and downs of love, even if it were just the downs of love, I would take that over just kind of building up a wall closed off from all of it because it can create compassion, empathy, and also feeling love for another person, even if it's not reciprocated, I think generally makes you a better person. And I think that generally helps you to, it can be a sanctifying experience. It can help you to learn, better understand God's own love for you and to show God's love to other people. So, I mean, that I I would say that. So even the ability of, I just think that like those are things that people who've never been told your sexuality is permanently broken have never had to think about, that there is actually something to be incredibly grateful for in heartbreak. And like, those are the things that like, if you are a straight person who doesn't find a spouse, you get to have all of those experiences. And none of that is about sex. None of that is about selfishness. That's about being human and being made in the image of God. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And having a connection and a longing for someone else that you don't feel ashamed of. Yes. I, I feel like as a person who's bisexual, like it's almost like easier to see that because like part of my sexuality was okay and part of right. it wasn't. And so... But they, but it's the same feeling, whether mm-hmm. it's falling in love with a man or falling in love with a woman, like it's the same feeling. And so I don't know, like to me, it was just that experience of like squashing down like a part of my sexuality. It's this internal thing that happens and that you can't like, you can't suppress one part of yourself and like have the rest of yourself be like fine. It doesn't right. like, that's not how your mind and emotions work. And so- like what you're saying resonates with me so much because it made it very obvious to me that this is about so much more than whether you have a relationship or not. It's about how you think about yourself and your own internal sense of what a family means and what mm-hmm. connection means and whether or not you're, whether or not when you love, it's actually love or whether it's some evil thing right. that's inside of you. And that's a good point, too, because some people might say, oh, well, if you're bisexual, then it's not actually rejecting same-sex relationships does not require lifelong singleness and celibacy because you could make something work with someone of the opposite sex. And so while I think the, some of the implications of non-affirming theology do play out a little differently if you are gay versus if you are bisexual, there are some things that are consistent across those experiences. And that is the underlying experience of shame that is inevitable just based on your existence in the world. And so that's another thing that distinguishes mandatory celibacy for LGBTQ Christians from involuntary celibacy for straight Christians who, you know, have not found a partner or have decided not to pursue that. And that is that Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not just wrong actions that we should be concerned with. It's also wrong desires and wrong inclinations. It's not just murder, it's anger. It's not just adultery, it's lust. And so if you have a desire for something that is sinful, 
that desire itself is something that you should be mortifying, that you should be renouncing, that you should be turning away from. That is the entire logic of the ex-gay movement, which, although it's been disastrous and a complete failure, makes a kind of theological sense. It just doesn't work, which indicates that some of its presuppositions need to be reassessed. But if it's true that all same-sex relationships are wrong, then the desire for same-sex relationships is not morally neutral. Right. It's actually morally culpable and is something that you should be seeking to change. The problem, though, is with other things, people, you know, people will make comparisons, well, to greed, anger, whatever the case may be. But generally speaking, hopefully the idea is by inviting the Holy Spirit into your heart and into your life, you can actually mitigate. It doesn't mean you may completely eliminate you know, all negative desires, but you can make a change. You can become a less selfish person. You can become a person who focuses more on other people. You can become a less angry person. Like that is possible. And so you should also be able to become a less gay person if same-sex relationships are categorically sinful. And so the failure of the ex-gay movement to me is a big red flag that the core presupposition of it has to be reconsidered, that all same-sex relationships are sinful. Because if they were, that movement should have been at least a moderate success, right? right? Not a smashing success, maybe, but, but a lot more successful. And so because of that, because it's not just about wrong actions, but also about wrong desires for wrong actions, part of, the, part of what is so crushing about mandatory celibacy for, I'll just in this example, talk about gay Christians, just think about my experience, but this applies in its own way to bisexual people too. But for a gay Christian, every sexual impulse, desire, feeling you ever have is disordered You have to look at it as disordered and you have to work to renounce it and eliminate it. Not just lustful fantasizing, simply noticing for me, noticing that a man is beautiful in a way that I wouldn't feel or notice with a woman. Just noticing that beauty and noticing my attraction to that beauty is something that should cause me to feel a sense of conviction that I am doing something wrong and seek to change it. And so really, in order for a gay Christian to live into non-affirming theology in a coherent way, you have to strive to eliminate your sexuality altogether, which functionally is, functionally, it's not celibacy, it's castration. It's not just don't be expressing your sexuality, it is actually eliminate your sexuality from your inner being. And that is not something that people can do. Like, that's, and, and then for bisexual Christians, even though it's not saying eliminate all of your sexual desires, it's saying basically eliminate, you know, half of them. And not that it's always a clear 50-50 split. But well, like, you can't do it. No. You, you can't like that's not... divide your, your inner self in that way. And so it just cr- it creates an undercurrent of shame that becomes an enormous burden to Which carry. And ex- that explains the mental health problem. It explains... Right? It- so How many not of the negative mental health outcomes, depression, suicidal ideation, drug addiction and abuse, just broken relationships across the board, broken loss of faith. I mean, that is not a question of, well, the person just wasn't willing to sacrifice enough. It's like telling someone your sacrifice to God is, you know, just don't eat for three months, right? for four months. Well, after a while, you're going to die. And To me, the core difference, some people say, well, sex is not like food. No, it is not. You can live without sex. You can. But can you live having eliminated your sexuality from even existing inside of you? Can you live in a state of constant shame about being a person with a sexual orientation? Like, that's not about people needing sex. It's about people needing to not have to have that oppressive burden of shame for simply existing. That is not about not being willing to sacrifice enough. That is about asking people to sacrifice the wrong thing. I feel like it dampened my experience of life. Like oh, yeah. all of life. It just dampened. Life is, it's like grayscale. It just numbs everything. Yeah. Yes. It's like grayscale. And for me, like coming to terms with being gay and accepting that, it the, the, the way I immediately thought of it internally just with myself was 
everything now has color. I know. I couldn't believe how amazing. Everything has color. Uh-huh. What's that book by Lois Lowry, The Giver? Is it the children's book? No. Yeah. Oh. The Giver, where they have a society where they have messed with everybody's brains so no one can see color. Oh. Because they wanted to eliminate racial prejudice. Huh. And other forms of prejudice. Huh. And so they just made it so no one could see color. But then this one kid, they, they had one person in the community, the giver, who still had, with, had all the memories and could have the color. And he was passing mm. on to this one kid. And so it's the kid learning, like, what color is when he didn't even have a frame for understanding that color existed. Oh, wow. And just about, like, how it – anyway. I but it's kind of similar to that. It's like, yeah. whoa, this is what other people have been experiencing. Because yeah. it's also – when I didn't realize that I was gay, I didn't come to terms with that until I was 19, I just kind of figured, well – Maybe this is just what being straight is. It's just a struggle. <laughs> you know, right. everybody's working on it. <laughs> everybody's right. working for it. Yeah. And um, other people seem like more excited, more excited about it than I am. But maybe everyone actually has some same sex attraction, but it's just working. Yeah. Work. And then I realized like, oh, no, <laughs> no, that is not what this is. No. And now I feel like I understand like what is going on with being human. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so true. It's like you come out and all of a sudden so many things just make sense. Like mm-hmm. it never made Yeah, it almost felt like just like joining. Like, oh, I just arrived at the party. <laughs> yeah. This is this has been going on the whole time, but I just haven't been able to access it. I've been just like tamped down. Yeah. And so while I think it's absolutely true that we are called to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus, and that we should be willing to sacrifice anything, that doesn't mean that there aren't some things that if you told someone to sacrifice them would just hurt the person without actually any good reason to sacrifice that. There are some things that we are designed for that are a good thing. Um, and I just think the metric, the measure of, is this what a true... I mean, and sometimes, I mean, it actually, to be fair, sometimes might hurt the person. Sometimes you choose to lay down your life for yeah. someone else. Right. But it's pretty clear how that was in keeping with the life of Jesus. It's pretty clear what that sacrifice did. It was a fact sacrifice for someone. To the sacrifice someone. didn't just hurt you. You sacrificed yourself to save someone else. That's beautiful. But if you just go, you know, jump in front of a bus, that is a sacrifice. It really is. But that's not a sacrifice that churches are going to be encouraging people to make. In fact, quite the opposite. And like, that's really sad. That's just a really sad thing. So, because there's no meaning. No, that. no. And so, like, there are lots of things that you can sacrifice, but it doesn't mean you should. I think that true Christian sacrifice should make us and mold us more closely in the image of God, not less. And so, if you are sacrificing any openness to romantic feelings, inclinations, much less relationship and love, the amount, the walls that you have to build around your emotional self get so high that you just end up closing yourself off from so many people, so many points of connection, goes much beyond sexual, like sexuality. And how does that make us, how does that make a person more like God? Our relational, yeah. like, how does that make us more like God? So it let's, doesn't. let's, let's pause on that for just a second. Let's assume that everything we've been saying is true. Like for, for our listeners or whatever, just assume that everything that we've been sharing about our personal experience and this transition, what it's been like, let's, let's assume that that's true. It's what a lot of people would say. How do you connect that then to theology and scripture and the Bible? Like, mm-hmm. can you give us a theological context for how we're supposed to interpret the things that we see and experience in the world and for romance and love in the Bible? So oftentimes when we share about our personal experience, personal story, or the harm that non-affirming theology has caused us, a common response from more conservative people is, well, you can't allow your experience to supersede scripture. The authority of your experience should be subjugated to the authority of scripture, not the other way around. And I agree with that. That's part of what makes my theological approach and understanding fall on the more conservative side of things. Because certainly, I think we have to be 
cautious about how we understand and apply our experience. It's too easy to just say, well, I don't really like this. This doesn't feel right to me. So I'm just, I'm going to go with what feels right to me. And I, th- I do think that's dangerous because if we're actually, if we believe that objective truth exists, and I believe that it does, we will always be imperfectly understanding it, right? We'll always see through a glass darkly, but we should Somebody be- Somebody said that. Somebody. I can't, I can't remember who it was. <laughs> Some, I think it was uh, James Joyce. And, uh, but it almost sounds too literary for Paul, but I love it. Okay. <laughs> but we should still be grasping after a better understanding of what is true. And so that's why I think we should be cautious that we are subjective, we are fallible. Certainly, you know, Jeremiah talks about the heart being deceitful above all things. Proverbs tells us to lean on the Lord with all of our heart and not to lean on our own understanding. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think mm-hmm. we should be really sober-minded about that. At the same time, our understanding of Scripture is also mediated through our fallible minds. Right. So it's, it's too simple to just say, well, don't pay attention to experience, just pay attention to Scripture, because you can't trust yourself. Well, I'm not going to completely trust myself as an interpreter of Scripture. I don't think any of us should trust ourselves 100% as right. an interpreter of Scripture. Yeah. That's why we have the communion of saints. That's why we have the, our tradition. That's why we have a lot of other checks on mm-hmm. our fallibility, mm-hmm. our propensity for bias, selfishness, and all those things. But it's not just that. It's also that the Bible indicates that there is a place for experience in how we're thinking about what is right. Um, it should not be the sole or I think even the primary mm-hmm. factor. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 talks about how to recognize false prophets. And he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So by their fruit, you will recognize them. To me, that's, and here Jesus is talking about false prophets. That can also include false teachers. So this is not like a direct statement about teachings, but I do think that the principle here has a lot of resonance and applicability from false teachers to false teachings as well. If you can tell a false teacher based on the fruit that their teachings bear, then I think if there is a teaching that is causing, it's not just hard, it's not just challenging, but it is deadly. It is destructive and for no good reason. Right. It's not to save the person you jumped in front of to take the bullet. You're just jumping in front of a bus. Well, that's a lot of bad fruit. And to me, if it's that much bad fruit coming from a tree, I might take another look at the tree mm-hmm. and see, is this a good tree? Mm-hmm. And I just think based on this, this, this basic idea and this basic principle and what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, we have a biblical warrant to do so. We have a biblical warrant to actually take experience seriously, not as the final determining authority, but as something that is calling us to go back and look at the tree more closely, the tree being how we're interpreting the Bible, mm-hmm. and say maybe our interpretation is not is is off. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe we need to look at it again. It's not that the Bible is wrong; it's that our fallible understanding of the Bible may be wrong. And I think looking at that much bad fruit, Jesus must have had some confidence in our ability to discern what good fruit is in order to be able to tell us to use that as a way of discerning. And Paul Paul also tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is, yeah, which I think is good fruit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Yeah. Are those traits that we see in many committed same-sex relationships? So many. Absolutely. Are those traits that are being furthered by telling LGBTQ Christians to extinguish their sexuality. No. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the positive traits aren't being furthered by that. We see a whole lot of negative traits too, from increased depression, drug abuse and addiction, suicidal ideation, all sorts of harm, destruction, and loss 
that is bad fruit. And the Bible tells us what good fruit is. So, and again, it's not to say, I think it's too simple and too easy to just say, well, if I can't see the harm in something, then therefore it must be okay or it must be good. I, I think that's too reductive. But if one understanding of scripture overwhelmingly, pretty much uniformly is leading to harm and to death, and another understanding of scripture overwhelmingly yeah. is leading to life and the fruit of the spirit, that's not just a, this feels right to me or this <laughs> feels good to me. That's a much bigger thing than that. And so, and I also like, I, I do, you know, I think I agree with what you're saying about kind of maybe not too extreme in either direction in privileging, you know, experience to the exclusion of the Bible or vice versa. But for me, I really get that from the Bible, right? The Bible does caution us against relying too much on our experience. The Bible Mm -hmm. also encourages us, Jesus encourages us to look at our experience to tell good fruit and bad fruit. And so I think then that invites us back to the biblical text so I think that's already right there, a red flag or an invitation to, to go back to the biblical text. And then yeah. when we go back to the biblical text and you want to talk about, you want to think about, okay, lifelong singleness, mandatory lifelong singleness for LGBTQ Christians. Is that something that is consistent with a broader witness of scripture when it comes to marriage and sexuality? And if you go to the opening chapters of Genesis, mm. God creates everything. And God says that everything is either good or very good, except for one thing. In Genesis 2.18, God says it is not good for the man to be alone. So then, and I think this is kind of almost humorous from for the biblical writers to have done this, but of course then what's what's the next step God takes? God sees it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God creates or brings all these animals <laughs> to Adam and is like, hey, are any of these going to, you know, help you out? Are they going to meet your need? Yeah. And you would think a dog, you know, could have done a lot, but it still wasn't enough, right? It's a nice companion. Right? Yeah. And so, no, Adam needed something more than that. Mm-hmm. He needed another person. Mm-hmm. And that then, you know, God certainly created somebody for sexual relationship, intimacy, and partnership with Adam too. So there are a couple ways you can look at that text. You can look at that text and say, this is God creating man for woman, and because that is the norm, therefore it is exclusively normative. But I think there's a more faithful way of understanding that too. It's just like, yes, heterosexuality is the norm for the overwhelming majority of people, and it always will be, and LGBTQ people don't, we're not going to change that. Right. And also, that's fine. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But we also see there God recognizing that the people he had created were designed for intimate partnership. And in many ways, kind of creatively making a partner uniquely for Adam. And so I think there's just the, way, the ways that you can see that too as a caution against pushing people, forcing people into lifelong singleness and celibacy, even when they have the desire and the capacity to meet somebody and build something, build a life with another person in a way that can really reflect the covenantal, self-giving love of God for us. One thing that's really interesting about the creation story in Genesis 2 is that even though Adam and Eve are different sexes, that doesn't seem to be where the focus or the emphasis is made. Partly, the emphasis is on her just being another person as opposed to the animals yeah. who were not similar enough to Adam to be a suitable partner. But also, when Adam first sees Eve, he rejoices and he says, Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He's recognizing that they share this core thing in common and that that is kind of what's causing him to rejoice. Now, yes, they are different in their ways too. And so what's interesting is, you know, the phrase suitable helper is also sometimes translated, you know, a help corresponding to him, a help answering to him. Pope John Paul II in his translation said a help similar to himself. But it's also true that that term can capture 
a level of difference as well. So what you'll hear sometimes in people arguing for gender complementarity is to say, yes, well, there's this vital combination of similarity and difference that is captured in this, in this word for suitable helper. But there is similarity and difference in same-sex relationships too. There's no necessary reason why in all romantic relationships, that difference needs to be a gender difference. I think there's a, an obvious reason why it needed to be a gender difference in the beginning. Yeah. For biological procreation. And biological procreation was absolutely central to how God was really building his kingdom people in the Old Testament. But that changes in the New Testament. It changes with the coming, the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because suddenly, celibacy becomes an honored vocation an honored calling for people because it's not God is not building his people anymore just through biological procreation, but through professions of faith. And so that's why eunuchs and barren women, right, who were excluded in Deuteronomy from full participation in the assembly of the Lord, but then it was prophesied in Isaiah that that would one day change. And then we see that beginning to change in the New Testament because the way that God is building his people has now changed. It's now through personal professions of faith in Jesus, that people become a part of God's family and people can become spiritual parents, spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, even if they never have a biological child through bringing people to faith. Mm -hmm. That opens up a lot of possibilities for how we look at the potential for non-procreative relationships to have a good place in the new creation. I do think it's true in the original creation. There's not a lot that we see in the original creation. Right? Yeah. It's all there kind of in those first two chapters. It doesn't and, even say they got married. No, and but you don't see same-sex couples in the original creation. Right. I think that's true. But the original creation, it also said it was good. It didn't say it was perfect. Clearly mm -hmm. it wasn't perfect because Adam and Eve really screwed up <laughs> big time. And so what we are heading into is not just going back to Eden, but the new Eden. And so we're not just going back to the original creation. We're going forward into the new creation. And so I think that a lot of the potential that existed in the original creation and in Eden then can come to fruition in the new creation. And how to analyze whether or not there can be space for same-sex. I think the most relevant question to ask about same-sex relationships is not did same-sex relationships exist in the original creation? Because according to Genesis 1 and 2, that's not there. But Neither is celibacy, though. Neither is celibacy, absolutely. But I think a more relevant question is, can same-sex desire be redeemed? Yeah. Can it be sanctified? And can it be caught up in the overarching narrative that we see toward God's new creation in Christ? Mm -hmm. And if the core meaning of marriage, as the Bible talks about in Ephesians and as Jesus talks about in Matthew 19, is about covenantal faithfulness. Yes. And for Jesus, when he talks about an exception to divorce in Matthew 19, he doesn't talk about infertility. That would have widely been considered in the ancient Mediterranean as a completely legitimate grounds for a man to divorce his wife because yeah. he deserves progeny. And if she can't give it to him, because, of course, it's always about, right, they didn't understand. It was always going to be the woman's fault. And that, therefore, of course, he should have the right to divorce her and find someone else to be able to procreate. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus offered no exceptions for infertility. The only exception mm -hmm. was infidelity. Because for Jesus, I think that clearly communicates that covenantal commitment and faithfulness is at the core foundation of marriage in a way that procreative capacity is not. And that doesn't mean procreation doesn't still matter. It does, but it's not essential to what the Bible talks about for the basis of marriage. Right. Covenantal commitment and faithfulness, that is essential because that is reflecting God's covenantal love for us. Yeah, you can have a marriage without children, but you can't have a marriage without faithfulness. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and I think certainly that's the way that we see, that's the way that Jesus talks about marriage. Yeah, absolutely. So that's... And again, people honestly often do have marriages when there's not faithfulness, and people can rebuild from that. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not to say that that's necessarily a death knell, although it's really hard. Right. Um, but in but terms of— that's a of, departure from— Yeah, meaning. and in, it's, it's a schism that's a problem. Yes, and in yeah. Jesus' order of priority, covenantal commitment and faithfulness takes, precedent over, takes precedence over procreative capacity. So I think that's just another thing to consider when people yeah. will say, well, Adam and Eve, you know— they were male and female that was necessary for procreation. There is a lot of truth to that, but also we're living in, we're living in the new covenant. 
Right. And things have changed in yeah. terms of the centrality of procreative capacity and procreation to God's family and God's kingdom people. You can learn more about Matthew Vines at his website, matthewvines.com. Also check out the Reformation Project. They are at reformationproject.org. And finally, you can buy Matthew's book, God and the Gay Christian, wherever books are sold. So as I was talking with Matthew and um, we were recording this interview, I couldn't help but think to myself, like, there's some Psy B people out there who say very dramatically different things. Like they're really quick and really clear to say, I live a very full, rich life as a celibate person. Like you don't have to have sex or romance in your life in order to live a full, rich life. Like I'm happy without living it to the point where I think some people who are side B could even have listened to this interview and gotten really angry about it feeling like, oh, they're painting it like I hate myself and my life is awful. Yeah, and that's why it was really important to me to paint the question as mandating celibacy for everyone across the board, because you're totally right, and I don't want to diminish or cheapen the experience of any side B person who, who is satisfied um, holding that position. Like, I think their story matters too. So it's not that everybody has these kinds of experience. It's just that like some people do. Right. I did. Right. <laughs> you did. Matthew did. And I think like my experience personally was probably much less difficult than yours. Like I was really to the point where like my attraction to women was so off the radar to me. I didn't even really think about it anymore. And I really did feel like I was living a, a good life. Like I was very grateful for the life I was living and it, it felt really good. It was incredibly hard to walk away from it. And I definitely did not walk away from it so that I could have a relationship since I did feel that I could have one with a man potentially. And, um, I definitely did not do it because I wanted to date women. Like, so that was like definitely not my deal. But at the same time, after I came out, I realized that there was a level of just this cognitive dissonance and this depression and just this, like you're experiencing this thing that seems so good, but you have to convince yourself that it's so bad that, that I had been living with. That was really, really difficult. <laughs> but I didn't realize that until later. I think oftentimes you'll find people who hold a traditionalist position will kind of point to either side B people or sometimes even like ex-gay people and be like, see, look, this is how you should live. This is how you should be. But in my own experience, stories like mine, stories like Matthew's are actually way more common. Um, I talk to people all the time who have endured pretty intense suffering of various kinds um, and our stories shouldn't be explained away either. In the same way we don't want anyone's to. I, th I think we need to sit with these stories and let them, let them teach us, let them mold us, let them cause us to consider new points of view. If nothing else, it will just help us become more empathetic and better humans. Right, because sometimes people, like I've experienced, people would say, oh, well, if you would have done this differently, it would have been better. If you would have done that differently, it would have been better. Or if your church had done this differently, then I bet that celibacy would have worked out great for you. And um, gosh, I've just heard people who have tried like everything that there is. And there's just no like magic bullet thing that fixes everything. Yeah, I would say in my own personal experience, I'm just speaking for myself here. Matthew actually referenced this in the interview. He talked about how to, to live into non-affirming theology, you have to eliminate your sexuality altogether. Um, and I actually agree with that. Um, that was really the tension you heard in my story early on. Um, we often frame this conversation of as just being like, oh, just don't have sex. And that's right. it. As if our sexuality is disconnected from the rest of our lives in this very clean, neat way. But it isn't at all. It's an integral part 
of who we are. And so that's not an easy distinction to make. And so when you grow up hearing that this part of you is bad and evil and wrong, um, it's you can't just tease those things apart. It's it's all connected, and and that's the the destruction, um, or that's when destruction happens. Rather, is um, when you believe that about yourself. And it is not just like a desire for sex. It's a deni- desire for a partnership, for love, for connection, and to cut yourself off from that. It's just to have this family in your life that's there for you. To cut yourself off from that is just, I mean, it's, for most of us, it's its really rough. Even, even for me, it was really rough, even though I didn't really um, realize it at the time at all. So I guess my hope is for our our listeners who might be really like uncomfortable by this thought or might feel like it would be a lot easier to dismiss it. I think it's going to make it so much easier, even if you don't agree with us to understand what we experience and to understand what this thing is about. If you don't explain these things away or kind of use trite things like, Oh, you know, that's a feeling or, you know, God can get you through anything and these kind of cliched things um, to just kind of explain it away. A lot of times when we talk about the stakes of the conversation, it's framed in a way of, um, well, what if the affirming position is wrong? The stakes are really high going against God's will. And I would, I would make the argue that the argument that the stakes are really high the other way as well. And I think that's a point of view worth considering that yeah. what LGBTQ Christians are being asked of is is very difficult and is oftentimes very damaging and so what if what if the the traditionalist position is wrong yeah just think about how your life would be different if it wasn't okay for you to even show your attraction or have your attraction i guess just one more thought on how i conceptualize this thing and that's just that for a person who's asked to be celibate for their whole life versus somebody who just is single because they haven't found the right person or they feel that celibacy is right for them, but they're straight. So for that straight person, the thought of finding someone who is well-suited for them, who they love, who they feel attracted to, who loves God and is a good person that they admire and respect that's kind of a, that's a hope that they have. That's a dream that they have. It can be a painful longing, but it's still an okay longing. But if you have to be celibate your whole life because you're gay, then finding that person is your worst nightmare because it brings up something in you that you feel is sinful, a desire to be closer to that person who, if only their gender was different, would be the exact person that a straight people person would be looking for. And living your life in fear of falling in love is just no way to live. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all our listeners. You have made this ride really amazing and we're having a lot of fun. Our reach has been incredible and the feedback we're getting has been truly, truly humbling. We're finding that we are really resonating with people and helping people to learn and to grow, providing a lot of healing for some folks as well, and just getting some stories and some theology out there that Stephen, I believe, is really badly needed. So an update on the podcast. We had the best of intentions, of course, in launching with lots of episodes. Uh, ready to go in the backlog as a buffer but as often happens in life that ended up not happening plus steve got a new job shortly after we launched that has been pretty demanding on his time especially in the holiday seasons so you know we are very committed to continuing this podcast and very committed to keeping the quality level up and even continuing to improve the quality level And also, we're really committed to, you know, being healthy people who live good lives. And so for us right now at this moment, that's going to mean that we're just going to release podcasts 
as we're able to whenever they're finished and whenever we can do a good job on them. And we're really hoping to have some time to catch up and get some of that buffer built up here in a couple weeks, but I just wanted to let you guys know that the time schedule may not always be exactly where we want it to be right now as we get going on this, but we're definitely committed to this and we really love it and we love what we're hearing in terms of feedback. So please let us know what you think. Let us know your questions, your comments, what you loved, what you hated, whatever. Find us on Open Bible Pod across all social media. We are especially fond and favoring of Instagram. So uh, send something your way. And of course, as always, thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. You are the ones that help us keep doing this. Thank you so much. Okay, here's a final thought question for you. If you identify as straight, what would be different about your life if all romantic relationships that you desired were off limits to you from the time you were an adolescent until the end of your life? What experiences that you've had in life would have been taken from you? And how valuable are those experiences? Or is there an upside to this? Would there be positives in your life because of this circumstances? And how would the balance be? Would those positives be worthwhile to you for what you would give, be giving up? And then finally, how would you be treated differently from others in your faith community if you did fall into this category where all of your romantic desires were considered wrong or off limits? And if you're somebody who's attracted to the same gender, just Switch the question. Think about your life if your natural attractions were never considered wrong. And if you could marry anyone based on their character, the health of the relationship, and of course their availability, how would your life be different? And then if you're bisexual, pick your own question. It is the bisexual prerogative. All right. Thank you everyone for listening and have a great week.